0: Uh, There are many different ways that we could approach this chapter, and as I was making the outline to to start chapter 5, I started thinking, well, how am I going to look at this, and what approach should I take for it? And I came to the conclusion that there are many, many more sermons that I could preach from verses 1 and 2 that really wouldn't fit the scope of our study, but there's a lot of things that we could talk about. And I suppose that if I were to go back to the very beginning of Ephesians, and we started the whole series all over again at chapter 1 that I would be able to preach a completely different series than I've preached. So there's a lot of good things to find here. Right now we're up, I I think we're somewhere up around 55, 56, 57 sermons or somewhere in that area that that we've covered in the book of Ephesians. But there's a lot to do here. And so in in trying to decide how should I approach chapter 5, I thought, well, the best thing to do is just not to depart from the way that we're going through it and uh, to to go along with the same types of outlines. And one of the things that you may have noticed as we've gone through these first four chapters is that wherever I could or wherever I saw it, I included some teachings about the doctrines doctrines of grace. And almost in, in every verse and certainly in every section, we find God's grace. And the fifth chapter is certainly no exception. So I don't know how we could approach this really much differently as we look at chapter 5, verse number 1. But to think about God's wonderful grace and what he does for us as his people. As we come to this uh, first verse in chapter 5, Paul brings us to the pinnacle of our Christian existence. And he says, be ye followers of God. And so the theme for the next several sermons that I want to preach from this chapter will be about discovering what it means to be a follower of God. Now, I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we consider the subject tonight, O to be like thee, and our text verses are Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes here, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask you that you would help us as we uh, study tonight. Help us to learn some things from your word, things that will help us. Help us to be followers of you as you've told us to be. Uh, thank you for each one who's come out tonight. Bless our hearts with the sermon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of tonight's message does come from that hymn that we just sung, O To Be Like Thee, that was written by Thomas Chisholm. And I want to read just that first verse, and I'm not sure if this was the first verse that we have in our hymnal because there are some variations to it. But the verse that I want to read to you says, O to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus thy perfect likeness to wear. O to be like thee, O to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. And I think those words do echo Paul's sentiment as he writes this, because he expresses the very same thoughts in verse number one, where he says, Be followers of God. And the word follower there actually means to be an imitator. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in another sermon, but it means to be an imitator of God. And obviously, if the Scripture says that we are to imitate God, then we have to know something about Him. And we don't know anything about God except how He is revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this evening, as we begin the subject, I want to talk to you about the revelation of God's character. Now, we have three sermons to preach on this. I'm going to cover point number one of the sermon of, this, of this, uh, three sermons tonight with, by talking about the revelation of God's character. And as I say, if we're told to imitate God, then there must be some, something revealed about God's character. There has to be enough told us about Him in the Scriptures that we would be able to model, our, model ourselves after Him. Now, recently, you remember I preached on Psalm chapter 19, and David, in that 19th psalm, declared the glory of God. And he wrote in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And as we studied that Psalm, I pointed out to you that the the Hebrew name for God in that first verse is the word El, E-L. And that's the most basic, most generic name that you find for God in the scriptures. And there is a name that would reveal something about God. It tells us about his might and his power, but that name doesn't tell us at all how we can personally know God. And so as David wrote that psalm, he goes down a little bit further and we notice that he changed the name as he talks about God and he changes it to the word Jehovah or Lord that we have it in our, in our King James Version. And there is the personal name for God and that shows us that we can know God in a personal way. And David changed that psalm as he got down to the portion where he talked about God's word and God being revealed through commands and through his word. And maybe I need to remind you, perhaps not though, that John chapter 1 verse 1 says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God with, with God, and the Word was God." And so the Word there, the living Word that it talks about, the Logos, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the Jehovah in the Old Testament. And so if we are to discover anything at all about God, we have to discover Him through the revelation of the living Word. John chapter 1, verse 18, John said, "...no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him." And so if we are to learn about the character of the Father God, then the place for us to look is in the life of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, be you followers of God, that's what he had in mind. Find out what Jesus did, look at Jesus' life, and then be an imitator of him, and then you'll be a follower of God. Now, I hope you do understand this, and uh, I think that this crowd certainly does, that when we talk about imitating God, that doesn't mean that we can be God. Now, in many ways, we can imitate him. In many ways, we can't imitate him. Some ways, we can be like him. In some ways, we can't be like him. And if we could imitate God in all respects, then, of course, we would be God as well. And you know, that's the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. He told her that if you will eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall be as God. Now, in the end times, the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will deceive people and that he will pretend to be God. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the scripture says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, us sitting here tonight would think that it's really, that is foolish to think that anybody could believe that they could be God. But there are people like the Mormons and some of the other cults who perpetuate that same lie that Satan told, and they tell their people that if you are a good Mormon, you can become a god. Now, I want to quote to you from the Mormon Doctrine of Covenants, just to show you that I know what I'm talking about. This comes from the Mormon Doctrine of Covenants. Now, I'm a professional. I can do this. Don't you try these kinds of things at home, please. Don't don't get this book. But in the Mormon Doctrine of Covenants, here's what they say about good Mormon people. It says, Then shall they be gods, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue then... shall." Because they continue, then shall they be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject unto them. And that's from the Doctrine of Covenants 132, verse 20. Now, that is nothing but but pure deception to tell people that they can become God. We can imitate God, but we can never be God. Now, let me show you what I mean by this and how the Bible shows us ways that we can't be like God. Several times in our study in Ephesians, we've talked about the attributes of God, and theologians generally categorize God's attributes into two different areas— uh, we before, as we were studying this, called those the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God. Now, for the purpose of our study, we're going to change the names a little bit to make it a little bit, uh, fit a little bit better with what we're trying to study here. But there are two different sets of attributes in God. Now, the first ones are the natural attributes of God, and the natural attributes are what correspond to the incommunicable attributes. And what that means is that there are some attributes that God possesses that are essential to him. They are inherent attributes that could never be a part of the creation. These are things that God cannot pass on to human beings. They could never be a part of the creature. So we'll talk about a few of those things. The first one is that God is self-existent. Or God has no origin. God has no creator. God just is. And that, of course, by itself would set God completely apart from all, from all others... ...because everything else there is does have a beginning. God's self-existence means that he's accountable to no one. All humans are accountable to someone... When children are growing up, they are, of course, accountable to their parents. And if you're a parent or you're an adult, you're accountable to other people. You may be accountable to those that you work with. You may be uh, accountable to social organizations. You may be accountable to your church, and certainly are if you're a member here. And you're accountable to different people. But God is accountable to no one. Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 4, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? Paul puts the same thoughts in another way in Romans chapter 9 when he speaks about God's uh, choices in salvation. Because God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then he says, the potter has power over the clay to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. So God is not answerable to anyone because God is self-existent. Now, if you have your Bible there, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at this scripture in Romans 9 because Paul is here arguing about the divine, sovereign choices of God and why that it was perfectly just for him to choose Jacob over Esau. And if God could make that sovereign choice, then God has the right to choose anyone over any other person. And so as Paul writes this particular scripture, he already knows that our objections are going to arise over this doctrine. And so he accounts for that in his argument. But look at verse number 14. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, it says, "'What shall we say then? "'Is there unrighteousness with God?' God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, as we go to verse number 19, Paul realizes that the objection is coming. Somebody's going to say, this isn't right. And so he says, verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the things formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And so very simply, Paul is telling us that God is answerable to no one. He's self-existent. There's no higher power. And so God certainly could never be answerable to any creature that he made. And so while we discuss such issues as this, as things like the sovereign election of God and God's predestination, and all of those types of things, there are people who object to it because they say it's not fair, it's not equitable, it's not right. But whatever cries of foul play that you might have against God you might as well figure you've lost the argument because God does what he wants. He does what he wills, and God answers to no one. So you can't be like God that way. We answer to others, and we are accountable to God as well. Now, another natural attribute of God is that God is self-sufficient. And that means that God has no needs. God is not dependent on anyone. Now, when Paul was preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill... He he spoke about a God that they ignorantly worshipped. You remember the story how that when Paul went to Athens that he saw all of the, the idols and all of the altars that were there? And he noticed one particular one that had an inscription that said, To the unknown God. And Paul took the opportunity to speak to them about that unknown God because he says, this is the one that you ignorantly worship. So in Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to them and he says, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. "...whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things." So Paul says, God doesn't need anything. He's the creator. He's the supplier of all things. He's the originator. Everything comes from him. In 1674, Thomas Ken wrote a hymn that has become the most often sung hymn in public worship. And he wrote these words. He said, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That first line says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And he writes there that God is the source. God receives nothing from any other source. And so that must mean that God is self-sufficient. Well, is it possible for you or me to be self-sufficient? Lots of people think so. They think that we don't really need God, but all of us are dependent on other people, indirectly or directly. And certainly all of us are dependent upon God. A person who says, like William Henley did in his poem, Invictus, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That man is a fool. None of us are self-sufficient. Even the worst atheist receives benefits from God, whether he likes to admit it or not. Thank God that all the blessings flow from him because we have absolutely no control Now, Jesus spoke of God's providence over all, and in that, he he demonstrated God's common grace to all people. And he said in Matthew chapter 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. And here's what God does. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, saved or lost, all are dependent upon God. God's the all-sufficient provider. You see, all that God would have to do is just shut out the sun for just a few minutes, and this entire world will be plunged into the sub-freezing temperatures of outer space. Life on this planet would die. And it's God is the one who controls it all. So the atheistic evolutionary scientist who denies God is just as much dependent upon God as the King James saliva-slinging fundamentalist Baptist preacher. We're all dependent on him. Well, another uh, attribute, natural attribute or incommunicable attribute, is that God is eternal. And this, in some respects, is very closely related to self-existence. But God is an eternal being. There's no beginning and no ending with God. God was, God is, God always will be. Now, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In addition to being an eternal God, he is also an unchangeable God, What he was in the past, he is in the present, and he will be in the future. Now, we notice here that as I state those three things, that I'm speaking in terms of time. But God is eternal, and God doesn't have to dwell in time. But as humans, we have to think of God in time, because that's the only way that we think. We're governed by time. And so, when we say that that we have everlasting life, then we are, of course, referring to a function of time. It just means that time's never going to run out. And so, you see, even when we think about God, we can't think in the realms where God lives because God's not bound by time. But let's think for just a moment about the use of the word eternal because the Bible says that we as believers also have eternal life. But the eternal life that we have is not like God's eternal life. We have a beginning. We were created. And, of course, God has no beginning. So we have eternal life, but it's not like God's life because uh, we had no beginning even though we have no ending. Now the angels have eternal life, but the angels were also created. They have no ending, but their eternal life is not like God's because they did have a beginning. So angels' eternal life is not like God's. Likewise, the Bible teaches that the lost will be in eternity, but eternal uh, existence is not the same thing as eternal life. You see, the lost have eternal existence, and the Bible calls that the second death. A person who dies without Jesus Christ goes into hell, and he will experience the second death, eternal existence in the lake of fire. Now, that's a place, of course, the Bible describes as being prepared for the devil and his angels. So, these different ones, the saved, the lost, the angels, all of us have eternal life, but it's not the same as God's eternal life, because he has no beginning or ending. Now, those are natural attributes of God. And you can see that in those things, we could never be like God in those ways. Now, to those attributes, we could also add this. Number four is that God is omnipotent. And we understand that means God possesses all power. And so we refer to God as the Almighty God. Now, I'm not going to waste time on trivial questions that people ask about God. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? Can God move an object that can't be moved? Can God draw a line between two points that's shorter than the distance between those two points? And people sit around and kick those things around all the time. Well, obviously, there are logical exclusions to things that God can do. But God is the almighty, powerful God. Now, the Bible tells us, of course, that as believers, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. But even in heaven, we won't be able to possess the power that God has. There's only one being that could ever possess all power. And that is a logical conclusion. If you were to consider that there might be another almighty power in the universe, then at some point, those almighty powers are going to overlap one another and infringe on one another. And so eventually, one of them is infringing on the power of the other, so you can't have two almighties. It's a physical, spiritual, and philosophical impossibility. And that's one of the reasons why we can say we can never be God. Now... Smart people like us ought to be able to figure that out. The Greeks and the Romans and the Norse, they figured that out because one thing that they could never conceive of was an almighty, all-powerful God. And so they had their system of gods, but they always had a God that in some way was was fallible, a God that in in some ways could not be or in all ways could not be all-powerful because they knew that was an impossibility to have more than one God. More than one God, one, more than one all-powerful God. So for people to think, well, you can become as God, well, what exactly is that? What is God? Well, the Bible tells us what God is. He's the Almighty, and if He's not Almighty, then He's not God. So ultimately, even the greatest gods that, that men have served, they always have to come to conclusion they can't have the characteristics of one Almighty God. We can't be as powerful as God. And we can't even make a comparison to that. There's not even a measurable comparison. I could tell you tonight, we don't even come close to being as powerful as God. But when I say we don't come close, that isn't even come close to explaining it. So we have difficulty. When we start talking about God, we're completely dumbfounded. How can we explain God? And so it's no wonder that when Paul was writing about the wonders of God and salvation, that he finally came to the conclusion, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God... How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Then number five, God is omniscient. And of course that means that God knows all things. Even your mother-in-law doesn't know all things. But God knows all things. When we get to heaven, we won't know all things. We're going to spend all of our eternity learning about God. And when we've been in heaven forever, we've still got forever to learn even more about God. We'll never reach the end of our knowledge of God. We'll never stop learning about him. Now, incredibly though, there are some people who say that God does not know all things because God chooses not to know all things. Now, we have preachers and Professors who try to get around this obvious conundrum that they have, that if God knows all things, then God knows everybody who will be saved and he knows who won't be saved. And the number of people that will be saved is a finite number. It's a fixed number and uh, it's fixed because of God's foreknowledge foreknowledge alone. I mean, nobody's going to be saved that God doesn't know is going to be saved. And so, to get around that, because they don't like the idea of teaching uh, unconditional election, that God elects people to salvation, that they try to throw out God's knowledge. And they say, well, God chooses not to know those things. Well, they've at least figured this out, that, that the very fact that God knows establishes whether one person will be saved or not saved because God has foreknown that. And so they just try to get around it by saying that God chooses not to know all things. Well, that's an impossibility because if God ever chose not to know anything, then God could not be an omniscient God. Then number six, God is omnipresent. And that means that God is everywhere and everywhere at the same time. But as we think about that, we can't have the same idea that the Hindus and the New Age people have, that God is everything, and everything is God. And so if you want to find God, then you just look at a bird. That's God. Look at a flower, and in that flower is God. Look at a bug. That's God. L- look at a blade of grass. There's God. Well, God is not eminent, and that's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. God is not eminent. That is, God is not contained in everything. Rather, God is transcendent. And that means that he's above and beyond the material universe. But his presence does fill all of the universe. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 139, if you would, please. We're going to read a few verses there. But I want you to understand, if you've ever done any studying in this area, when I say that God is transcendent and not immanent, I'm using the words there as humanists would use them. Not as theologians use them, because as a theologian would say, God is both transcendent and immanent, because he's close to his creation. But he's not immanent in the same way as, say, the Hindus or the New Age people believe. But in Psalm 139, verse number 7, David writes about this, and he said, "'Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence?' If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from me, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And so we could never be like God in this way. We can't be present everywhere at one time. Even when we receive our glorified body, we won't be present everywhere at one time. Now, that glorified body is going to be a wonderful body. It's going to be much different than what we have now. It'll be a body fashioned like that, of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that arose from the grave. And we know that in his body, he was able to pass through those grave clothes, remember? He came out of the tomb, didn't have to have the stone rolled away to get out. He was already out when it was rolled away. So he didn't need that. And... Uh, as he appeared to the disciples later, he could go into rooms, pass into a room and out of a room without even opening a door. We're going to have that kind of body. It's it's a special kind of body because we'll have the power of thought to be anywhere that we want to be. Just by thinking it, we can go anywhere that we want to go. But still, that body is limited to being in one place at one time because God is the only one who possesses this ability that is omnipresent. Now, when we talk about these attributes of God... We mean that, that these natural or incommunicable attributes, that God has all of these things in infinite amounts. And so when we talk about uh, that God is all-powerful, we mean that he is infinite in his power. When we say that God is, is omniscient, we mean that he's infinite in his knowledge. When we say that God is omnipresent, he's infinite in his presence. And there is another logical conclusion. You can't have more than one infinity. It's impossible to have anything or have more than one infinity. That's another, that's another philosophical impossibility. And so we could never be like God in that way. So here we have it. Paul says, be followers of God, be imitators of God. But as he says that, he does not mean in any way that it's possible for us to become gods. There will always be this infinite degree of separation between God and the creature. We never can have these natural or incommunicable attributes. But we've still got the thing that he says here because he says, be followers, be imitators of God. So there has to be a way that we can imitate God. Well, there is a way, and that's because God has another set of attributes. Before, we called those communicable, but this time we're going to call them moral attributes of God. God has moral attributes, and this is what Paul is talking about. When he says, be an imitator of God, he means be like God in his moral attributes. Now, you need to understand this as well, that as we are overwhelmed by God's incommunicable or natural attributes, we are also overwhelmed by the moral attributes of God. And God has only allowed us to share in that in some way, in some capacity. So in other words, the moral attributes of God can be passed on to the creature. And so when Paul says, be an imitator of God, he means imitate God's moral attributes. Well, how can we... Imitate God, how can we be like him in a moral way well i 'll give you just two tonight. The first one is we can be holy. God is holy, and I know that I can be holy because God said that I can be holy in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God said, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, when he said that, he didn 't mean that just for Old Testament saints. And he didn't mean it for those who could go to the temple or to the tabernacle and go through all the rituals and the things that they did there to make themselves holy. He's not talking about that because the New Testament tells us as well that we are to be a holy people. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or manner of life, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." So right there, Peter says, God is holy. That's one of his attributes. And now he says, you be holy. That should be one of your attributes. So you could imitate God in that way. Secondly, we can be righteous. Now Romans 10 verse 3 talks about the believer, the unbeliever, in relation to the righteousness of God. It says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So God is righteous. But here's the thing about holiness and righteousness. Neither of those can come within us. We can't be holy and righteous on our own. Because those two things are not a part of the natural makeup of man. It's not in our nature to be either holy or righteous. The fallen nature of man stops us from being holy and righteous. Now, faith, for instance, is an act of righteousness. Is there anyone here who would deny that faith is an act of righteousness? I think we all agree to that. That is a righteous act. But we can't have faith because we're not righteous. Now, this is one of the fallacies of of those who teach that all men must have the ability to repent and believe the gospel before they are regenerated. Now, the college professor that we've been quoting that I mentioned before said that we are wrong when we say that regeneration comes before repentance and faith. But Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 2, for all men have not faith. All men have not faith. And we can equally say, all men have not righteousness. Because that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 3.10. He said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, if you're following me here, then you see that if we can't be holy and we can't be righteous, then something has to change for a lost person, for a person dead in sin, in order uh, for that person to have faith or righteousness, something has to change. Well, you know what the change is? The change is regeneration. In regeneration, we receive the capacity for righteousness. And once we have the capacity of righteousness, then we can have faith. We can exercise faith. Now, that is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again before you can see. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's the same thing as saying you must be regenerated before you can see through the eyes of faith. Now, he's obviously not talking about physical sight here. And so if we put the scripture together, we can see this. No pun intended. We can see this because God has revealed it. He's opened our eyes to regeneration. Now, that explains to us why there must be an election of God. All of this takes place at the discretion of God before man ever does anything. And so God has to decide who to regenerate beforehand because it's obvious that God has not regenerated all people. If he regenerated everybody, then everybody would be saved. So here's how we fit the scriptures together. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 9, "...so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy." So somehow we can tie all of these things back to the attributes of God. And this is the way that you take the Scriptures and you work these things out. The Scripture will never be contradictory. And that's why you never have to make up things. You never have to make up, well, God chooses not to know something. You don't have to make that up. You don't have to say that, well, God chooses us based upon our foreseen faith. He saw that we would believe, and so therefore God chose us. Well, it makes no sense when you look at it that way. Why not just believe the Bible and believe that God is sovereign and leave it all at that? So now that we're born again, the Bible says we can have righteousness. And you know something about that righteousness? It's not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ. In Second Corinthians 5.21, the scripture says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That shows us just how dependent we are upon Jesus Christ, because without Christ, we could never be like God. And when Paul says, be an imitator, be a follower of God, you can't unless you know Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you can imitate him. Well, we could go on and on with this. I mean, there are many, many other things we could talk about. I hate to leave the outline at this point, but it's time to quit. But there there are many other things we could talk about. I'm not going to go into these other things because we'll have opportunity to talk about them over and over again as we go through uh, the rest of this book. But but God also has other moral attributes. He has justice and mercy, kindness, forgiveness, love, and compassion. All of those are moral attributes that God says that we can possess. Now, in another verse of that hymn, I believe it was verse number 2 that we were singing tonight, The writer says, O to be like thee, full of compassion, that's a moral attribute of God, loving, moral attribute, forgiving, moral attribute, tender, moral attribute, kind, moral attribute, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. We can be like him because of the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ who gave us that revelation so that we can imitate God. Thank him that God came, Jesus came, to seek and to save that which is lost. Let's pray.